Jesus' name, amen. Well, um, the, the chapters that we're going to kind of cover today, chapters 32 to 37, are the words of Elihu. And Elihu is a, is a new figure in the book of Job. And um, D.A. Carson, who's maybe the finest biblical, living biblical scholar today, is the most interesting and the most difficult in the book of Job. The most interesting and the most difficult in the book of Job. I hope that you have an opportunity just to take time and read over this whole section. What we're going to do today is, is just kind of give a, a brief overview of kind of Elihu's contribution to the whole book of Job. But just to kind of shake some of the rust off, it's been a while since we've been in the book of Job, just to kind of give you a reminder of what's happening in the story. Maybe some of you haven't heard any of the other messages in the book of Job. And this is, a, this is a good, maybe first time for you just to kind of go and think about it and consider the book. The, the, the book at the beginning uh, was set in a land in which there was this very rich man and his name was Job. He was the, the, the richest man of the, the whole region that he lived in. He was a man who seemed to have everything. He had a perfect family. He had um, what appeared to be a perfect life. He was a God-fearing man. He was a man who had a close relationship with the Lord. And he was one who was kind of, in a sense, the apple of God's eye. So God calls this divine counsel. And in the divine counsel, Satan shows up. And actually, there, there are two occasions where God calls a divine counsel and Satan shows up. And God said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? And Satan essentially made the argument that the reason why Job loved God was because of all the benefits that he got in serving him. God had made him rich. He'd given him this wonderful family. Um, Job had everything you could possibly want. So why wouldn't Job be one who was faithful and God-fearing? Satan argued, if you take all that stuff away from him, if you strike his body, he will curse you to your face. And so God allowed that to happen. Job lost all ten of his children. He lost his possessions. And his body was struck with the most awful kinds of disease. He was ravished. People thought he was terminally ill. And Job, though, didn't have an understanding of why he was going through it. He didn't have the same kind of perspective that we have of his situation as the reader. And so... Job and all of that did not curse God. So Satan sent three friends. And we remember the three friends were Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. Eliphaz was a, was a mystic. His source of truth were these experiences that he had. And he thought that that would shed light on Job's problem. Uh, Bildad was a traditionalist. He believed that the, that the collective teachings of, of men over the, over the centuries shed light on Job's problem. And then you had Zophar, who was a rationalist. He was somebody who believed that he could reason. He could use all kinds of syllogisms to get to the root of Job's problem. And all three of them agreed what Job's problem was. Because in the ancient world, there was this prevailing belief that if bad things happened to you, it was a consequence of you doing bad things. 
Uh, it was this idea of what goes around comes around. It's called the law of retribution. If you do something bad, something bad will happen to you. And so they assumed that Job was harboring all kinds of evil sin in his heart. He had done all kinds of evil things that had never come to the surface. And so God was now punishing Job for the sin that he had committed. Now we know that that was all false. We know that the reason, the very reason why Job was suffering so much was because he was actually so loved by God. He was so close to God, but they didn't get that. And so um, they continued to try to press in on Job. And one of the lessons that we learned from that is that um, when we make other things our source of truth, other than the word of God, it will lead us astray. And that's exactly what happened to them. Now we're introduced to a new figure in the book. And, and really, um, there, are, there are as many opinions, scholarly opinions on, on Elihu as probably there are scholars. There are some people who think that he was the one who prepared the way for the Lord. The Lord comes into the story after this, that he is this, this great figure, this monumental figure, and that uh, he, he points us to Jesus. And then there are others who think that Elihu was absolutely the scourge of the earth. And there is every p opinion in between. So I, th uh, I think that as we read this, we're going to probably fall in between on these as well because there are certain reasons why people hold him in high regard, and there are certain reasons why people hold him in low regard. But we're going to try to give a balanced, sober evaluation of this man and try to figure out what lessons we can learn from it as we read the Bible together. So, um, but, but if there's one thing that, that I hope that you go home remembering, because this is a problem in our world today, it is this. Be wary of people who claim to know God's will for your life. Be wary of people who claim to know God's will for your life. Well, we're going we're gonna to look at him. We're going to look at uh, Elihu. We're going to look at the good. We're going to look at the bad. And we're going to look at the ugly. All right, so we're going to see. He's going he's gonna, to he's gonna stand out in all three of these areas. Let's, let's, start with the, um, let's start with the good of Elihu. Well, first of all, Elihu was not an attack dog like the other three friends. Eliphaz, Eliphaz uh, Zophar, and Bildad, they, they were defending their theo theology, their theological system, this law of retribution, their, their assumption that, that if something bad happened to Job, he must have done something and they were not going to be moved no matter how much Job gave them evidence to the contrary. Job gave them plenty of evidence. He pointed out, Namely, that, that they could probably all think of people who lived wicked lives, who, who died heroes. Speeches were made in their honor, and they never lost their children, and they never lost their possessions. And, and, and if anything, when they went to the grave, they, they went stronger than they, than they ever had been in their whole life. And he said that this, this law of retribution just doesn't explain that. And they could never give an answer to that question that Job raised. What about the blessing that the wicked have in their lives. If they're going to say that he must have lived a wicked life and therefore is getting wicked, the wicked man's recompense, then, then how do you explain how the wicked man gets the righteous man's recompense? Well, they couldn't answer it in their simplistic theology, but they defended it to the end. But he wasn't like that. Eliphaz had another objective. What Eliphaz wanted to do was to, to defend God's justice. In, in defending himself, 
Job over and over again called into question God's justice. Why is that? It is because to some degree, Job bought into this idea of this law of retribution, that that bad things happen to people who are bad and good things should happen to people who are good. And because bad things were happening to him and he was a God-fearing man, he couldn't understand how God was just. And so one of the things that we see about Eliphaz is that he spends a lot of time defending God's justice, and rightfully so. He wasn't an attack dog like the others. He didn't accuse Job of having secret sins in his life that were unrevealed. He actually, and we're going to talk about it in a minute, he, he, he mentioned that, that actually God can use our suffering for a good purpose in our lives. Second thing we notice that is good about Eliphaz is that, um, or I'm sorry, not Eliphaz, Elihu, is that he rightly believed that God uses our suffering redemptively, that God can have a good purpose in our suffering. Let's, let's just take an example of this. We find it in chapter 33. We're going to, there's verse 19 and then verses 22 to 26 and then verse 29 and 30. Now he's describing a man just like Job. Man is also rebuke, rebuked with pain on his bed and with continual strife in his bones. Now, this is obviously, this is obviously Job he's talking about. And then he says, his soul draws near to the pit and his life to those who bring death. If there be for him an angel, a mediator, one of a thousand, to declare to a man what is right for him, and he is merciful to him and says, deliver him from going down into the pit, I have found a ransom. By the way, it's interesting there that he, that he um, brings up the fact that there, there's a mediator between God and man. Now, we know who the true mediator is between man and God, and that's, that's Jesus Christ. He's a true mediator. So he had some sense in which there was a mediator to, to help the person who found themselves in this position. He goes on, let his flesh become fresh with youth. Let him return to the days of his youthful vigor. Then man prays to God and he accepts him. He sees his face with a shout of joy and he restores man to his righteousness. He goes on and he says, behold, God does all these things twice, three times with a man to bring back his soul from the pit that he may be lighted with the light of life. Now, what is he saying there? His basic point is that God uses our suffering redemptively to bring us back to the Lord. Have you not experienced that in your life? Maybe sometime that that you found yourself in a place of suffering, you began to reflect on your life and you realized that changes needed to be made in your life as a result of of the things that you're going through. Uh, uh, That's something very often I find when, when I visit people in the hospital, maybe they've been through some traumatic situation and very often when they're in the hospital, they, they will share with me. They say, you know, since I've been in the hospital, I've been doing some real thinking. I've been taking an inventory of my life, and I realize that, that I have wandered away from the Lord. And all the busyness of life, I, I forgot God, and, and God has just taken me. He's slowed me down. He's put me in this hospital bed, and now he's caused me to reflect upon my life and what really matters. And I want to live the rest of my days for him. I don't want to get sidetracked again. Have you ever experienced that? God uses our suffering redemptively, and that's certainly correct. That's a good thing that he points out. Also, another thing that we notice that's good about Elihu as opposed to his friends is that he doesn't feel that he's above Job. He doesn't feel that he was above Job. You have to remember, Job was despised by everyone. Even the little kids made fun of him. In a culture where older people were respected and honored, to have children mocking and making fun of you showed how low you were in that culture, in that society. And uh, we notice here 
in uh, chapter 33, verses 6 and 7, Behold, I am toward God as you are. I too was pinched off from a piece of clay. Behold, no fear of me need terrify you. My pressure will not be heavy upon you. He had been mocked mercilessly by his friends, and now he has this man, Elihu, comes to him and says, Look, Job, I am pinched off a piece of clay just like you. There's no difference between us. And this is, this is an important lesson for us, I think, as, as we deal with people who are going through hard things uh, and people who feel broken and they feel rejected. Personal humility is paramount when we deal with other people. In fact, it's a necessity, the scripture says. Uh, look at uh, what the Apostle Paul says in Galatians chapter 6, verses 1 through 3. He says, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression... You who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. And so we notice here very clearly that when we are dealing with broken people in their brokenness, that we need to approach others in a spirit of humility, not in a sense in which we are above them or we have a superior position. And Elihu is a beautiful example of that. The fourth thing we notice is, is that he doesn't accuse Job of any secret sin like the friends do. And uh, if you notice at the end of the book in chapter 42, verses 7 through 9, the Lord's anger burned against, burned against Job's friends. But, uh, and, and so as a result of that, God has Job make a sacrifice on their behalf. But Elihu, he, he's left out of that. And anyone who reads the book closely will notice that. And many people wonder why was Elihu left out of that. And I, I believe that it's probably because of this reason. Job didn't make the kinds of false accusations against, uh, Elihu didn't make the same kinds of false accusations against Job that the friends made. And so as a result of that, he, he, he is he's good in that sense. He doesn't make false accusations against Job. Well, those are the good points. Those are his good points. But what are some of his bad points? Well, number one, Elihu was motivated more by anger than by love. He was motivated more by anger than by love. We notice in um, the introduction uh, to this man in chapter 32... Um, it says this, so these three men ceased to answer Job, the three that we discussed, because he was righteous in his own eyes. Then Elihu, the son of Barakel, the Buzite of the family of Ram, burned with anger. Notice that one time he burned with anger. See it again. He burned with anger at Job because he justified himself rather than God. And we continue on. He burned with anger also at Job's three friends. Because they had found no answer, although they had declared Job to be in the wrong. And then in verse 5, he noticed, And when Elihu saw that there was no answer in the mouth of these three men, he burned with anger. He was angry. Some people have called him the original angry young man. And so this is what drove him. Maybe it was a righteous indignation of some sort, but his motive was anger. We need to be careful about that when we're dealing with people to, be, to allow our motivation to be anger. Um, 
It is possible to be angry and not sin. We know that, right? Uh, It's possible to be driven by righteous indignation. But we need to remember that when we are driven by righteous indignation, that the devil is right at the door. In fact, the Apostle Paul makes that clear in Ephesians 4, 26 and 27. He says, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Why does, why does the Apostle Paul say that? Yes, it's possible to have righteous indignation, but when we are angry in that position, now we are vulnerable to the devil's attacks. Martin Lloyd-Jones, the great Welsh preacher, uh, talked about this, and, and one of the things that he, he pointed out about when we're angry is that we lose our sense of balance when we're angry. We have to take sides when we're angry. And, and uh, very often we are unwilling to change our mind when we're angry. And even more so, we might even be willing to cut off our nose to spite our face when we're angry. And so we need to be careful about being driven by anger, even if we feel like our anger is justified. This is, this is what drove him. Four times it says that he was angry in the introduction to this guy. Number two, another bad thing about Elihu's approach to Job was that he was ultimately wrong about him. He never answers Job's dilemma. He never gets to the root of it. In fact, um, Elihu's theory was, was that God was using Job's suffering to reveal Job's wicked heart. So he didn't go along with the other guys to say that Job had committed some terrible atrocity and therefore was suffering in this horrendous way as a result of his atrocity. No, he said what happened was God allowed the suffering to come into his life to force the evil things of Job's heart up to the surface so that everyone could see it. And, and really some of the things that Job says is pretty outrageous. But we have to remember that Job is a man who is suffering terribly. This, this is uh, how he puts it. Uh, We see it in Job 34, verses 36 and 37. Would that Job were tried to the end because he answers like wicked men. For he adds rebellion to his sin. He claps his hands among us and multiplies his words against God. What is he saying? God has allowed his suffering to come into his life to reveal the wickedness of his heart. Well, what's the problem here? We know as people who have had the heavens opened up and we see everything in the background understand that the reason why Job is suffering is so that God can show to his entire creation that the motive for his people's love for him has nothing to do with all the benefits they receive from him, but the relationship that they have in him. And so God is putting Job on display to show that he doesn't love him for the stuff that he gave him. He loves him simply because he loves him. He has a transformed heart and he's living in right relationship with God. And so Elihu is ultimately wrong about God. And Elihu makes bad assumptions about other people's faith. Here's another thing that was, that was bad about Elihu. Um, Why is Job suffering? He didn't pray enough. He didn't pray enough. Look at this. Job 35, verses 9 and 10. Because of the multitude of oppressions, people cry out. They cry out for help because of the arm of the Almighty. But none says, where is my God, my maker, who gives songs of the night? What is he saying there? What is he 
mean by that? What he's, what he's essentially saying is, is that the reason that Job is suffering, God is there, God is listening, but when Job is suffering, he's just crying out about the things that God is doing to him, but he's actually not going to God in prayer. Now, if you've read the book carefully, you can see that that is totally false. When Job's friends attack him, they never go to God in prayer. But oftentimes, when Job is attacked by his friends, when, once he answers his friends, his heart will turn to God and he'll begin addressing God. But his, his reason is, he's saying, the reason why you're suffering, Job, is because you don't pray enough. There's something wrong with you, Job. Job, you have a problem. The reason God isn't listening is because you are bad. There's something going on in you, and therefore God won't listen to a word you say. It's sort of like um, recently I heard the, the story of a, a Michigan pastor who's doing the funeral of somebody in the church who died, 71-year-old man who died of COVID. And the pastor declared to the congregation that the reason why the man died was because he didn't have enough faith. That's just like Elihu. The reason why Job's suffering continued on was because he didn't pray enough. And, and you know, this is a soul-breaking kind of, uh, of indictment against somebody who's spending time in prayer. He makes assumptions about people that aren't true. One of the best things about being in ministry is, as a pastor is I get to know God's people. And there's some people in the church and the body who are sitting around you who, um, who are quiet, who don't say a lot. But then when you get to know them, when you hear their faith, when you hear how God brought them through struggles, you see how beautiful it is. It's easy sometimes to look at other people and assume the worst about them when God is at work in the midst of their life and they're, they're walking with God and they are trusting God and they, they, they know God and they have a relationship with God and the relationship with God is vibrant we just kind of assume things about other people that aren't true. And just as Elihu assumed things about Job that were just simply false, Job's problem was he didn't pray. We know Job prayed. That wasn't his problem. Job didn't understand his situation. And, and the reality is, is that we know that very often God doesn't answer prayer for a very good reason. Think about the Apostle Paul. Apostle Paul had... Um, a thorn in his flesh. He asked three times to have it removed. Remember that? God says, no, my grace is sufficient for you in your weakness. God was going to use that no for a good purpose in Paul's life. Or we think about the Lord Jesus when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he asked that the cup of wrath might be taken from him. But the answer was no. And he submitted to the Father's will because... Because the Father, and Jesus understood this as well, but because the Father understood the greater implications that would result in Jesus not going to the cross for his people. And so therefore, the answer was no. And for Paul, the answer was no. God sees our circumstances from a bigger perspective. God understands how, how the intricacy of life fits together. And he, in his wisdom, understood in this situation that that was not the time yet to act in Job's life. Even though Job didn't understand it, it wasn't because somehow Job didn't pray enough. That's not why he was suffering in that way. Well, those are the, some of the... Some of the bad things, 
So we've heard the good, we've heard the bad. Now what about the ugly? How could it get worse than that, right? It does. It does. Elihu was self-absorbed. Elihu was self-absorbed. Um, it's, it's almost a little difficult to read these chapters, 32 to 37, without feeling a little bit sick. I mean, he spends most of it preparing you for this great thing that he's about to say, this great pronouncement. Um, one, scholar, one scholar notes this in chapter uh, 32 alone. He uses the word I 19 times and me, my, and mine 13 times. Just in one chapter, 32 times he's referring to himself in one way or another. And the reality is, is that, that you have to imagine that Elihu struggled with something that we all struggle with, and that's self-centeredness. In fact, what is the great commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then there's another like it, to love your neighbor as yourself, right? That, that reveals our self-centeredness. Sometimes we read that and we say, oh, I love my neighbor. Well, do we love our neighbor as ourself? Do we think about our neighbor as much as we think about ourself? Do we take care of our neighbor's needs as much as we take care of our own needs? What Jesus is showing us in, in these two great commandments is how impossible it is in our own flesh to please God. That we need another one, that we need a representative, that we need one who did keep these things. And we see this most beautifully illustrated in the cross where Jesus went and he died for our sins so that through him we can live. You see, Elihu is self-centered, self-absorbed, but so are all of us. It's a reality of our sin, the state of our sin, and that's why we need a savior who shows us what true love is. It's self-giving love, and we see that. In the cross, he was self-absorbed, and um, I would like to say that he was also delusional. <laughs> he was also delusional. He believed that he was God's spokesman. He believed that he was God's spokesman. We're going to go back to the verses that we started with in 36, 1 through 4. want to want to read it through that light. And Elihu continued and said, bear with me a little and I will show you for I have yet something to say on God's behalf. Okay, he's been saying this the whole time. I have something to say. You wait. It's going to be amazing. I have something to say. I have something to say. I have something to say. Now he says, I have something to say on God's behalf. Verse 3, I will, I will get my knowledge from afar and ascribe righteousness to my maker. For truly my words are not false. One who is perfect in knowledge is with you. Think about that for a second. One who is perfect in knowledge is with you. Now, um, I love this Derek Thomas quote. He kind of captures it, I think, very well, very graciously. It appears on the surface, at least, that Elihu is claiming to be equal with God. Perhaps that is unfair to Elihu, but his language is now rising into that stratosphere. Why should Job listen to him? Well, because he is God's spokesman. He is speaking on behalf of God. And so therefore, his answer is correct. Therefore, his answer is right. And why do we know that he was not God's spokesman? <laughs> because his answer was wrong. Because his answer was wrong. He was wrong about Job. You know, there are a lot of people going about us. You can turn on the television and see it. They will call themselves prophetic figures, 
Sometimes they'll even call themselves prophets. And they will make all kinds of statements and predictions and all kinds of things. But you will see very often that they are wrong. As soon as they're wrong, uh, you know clearly that they are not what they claim to be, but only delusional. We need to be careful about that. And uh, as we see Elihu, we need to be careful about people like him. Well, um, what lessons can we learn from, from this? Number one, and this is something that a point Elihu made that is true, and we spent some time talking about it, so we don't have to spend too much time on it. But number one, God uses our pain as an instrument to draw our hearts back to him. God certainly does that. Um, I love this quote from C.S. Lewis. You've probably heard it before, but... We can ignore even pleasure, but pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. God does use our pain redemptively. He uses our trouble redemptively. He uses it to draw us back to himself. While this wasn't the purpose behind Job's suffering, we know that it is true that it's often a purpose in the things that we go through. Number two, we need to be careful when we encounter people who claim to know God's will for our lives. We need to be careful about that. The first thing we have to say about that is sometimes they're correct. Sometimes they're correct. How do we mean that? Well, because the Bible, the Bible tells us God's will for our lives. And maybe we're living in a way that's outside of the obvious revealed will of God. And they come to us and they say, you know the Bible says that you shouldn't live that way, that that's not God's will for your life that you live that way. And if somebody comes to us and says that and it's true, well, yes, they are, they are telling us what God's will is for our lives. And it's correct. It's true. That we need to live in accordance with what God's word says. So, It isn't always wrong when somebody tells us they know what God's will is for our lives, as long as what they're saying is grounded in Scripture. And then we run into people who are well-meaning, right, who have a hunch about what they believe God's will is for our lives. It's not really grounded in Scripture or anything like that. might be well-meaning, but we need to take that with a grain of salt. But then there are some people who use this as a way to manipulate other people. And we need to be very, very careful about that. When my, when my parents went to college, they went to Bible college very often. This was used as a trick by young men who were interested in young ladies. They would go to the young lady who had not shown any interest in them, but they were interested in her. And they would say, I believe it's God's will that we get married. God told me that we should get married. And they, and they said that there were times where the young lady who was not interested previous to that in the young man heard those words from him and in her piety, she, she acquiesced and married the man because he said he knew it was God's will that that should happen. That happens. Um, we've had people come into the church office during the week and say, God told me that I am to preach next Sunday morning. People off the street we never met before. God told me that I am to preach this Sunday morning. You know what we say? We say, well, I think God will let us know if that's correct. 
And so uh, we're not going to be manipulated like that, right? Sometimes you might even get strange letters from people where they will write things in there that they, they believe that uh, they're, they're purveyors of God's will and you should do this or that. We need to be very, very careful because people use that as a tool to manipulate other people. The place that we seek to find God's will is in the word of God. That's why as God's people, we need to get to know God's word so that we can really understand what God's will is in any given circumstance or situation that we are faced with. And in that way, we will not be, we will not be um, bamboozled by people like that. Uh, and at the end of the day, one of the sad things about this whole situation is that, that this man who claims to be God's spokesman was unwittingly in league with Satan. Well, why do we say that? Well, look at, look at for instance, um, Job uh, chapter 35, verses 2 and 3. Do you think this to be just? Do you say it is my right before God? that you ask, what advantage have I? How am I better off than if I had sinned? And he's, he's misquoting Job there. But the idea is, as he is saying, that the reason why Job is most upset is because he didn't get what he bargained for from God. And we know that that was never Job's intention. But that was, that was Satan's contention against Job. That Job was only in it for what he could get from God. We have here Elihu now agreeing with Satan, and he's one who's claiming to be God's mouthpiece. We need to be very careful when we encounter people who claim to be God's mouthpiece. As God's people, we need to have real discernment in situations like that because it's, maybe you've never experienced it, but it's more common than a lot of us think. And then finally, the third thing is, true relief from the troubles of this world is only found in Christ. True relief from the troubles of this world is only found in Christ. You know, sometimes when we're, we have somebody in our life maybe who's dealing with deep struggles and deep pains and deep trials in their life, we can try to insert reasons why they're going through it, and, and we may not have any idea why they're going through it. Instead of maybe giving all kinds of false ideas and false reasons, one of the best things we can do is just turn their gaze, turn their eyes to Jesus. Maybe that's you. Maybe you're that person today. Maybe you're struggling. Maybe you're in the, the, the depths of your life. Maybe you're, you're, you've been rocked by something. Maybe it's a, a physical malady. Maybe it's a challenge at work. Maybe, maybe it's a financial struggle that you're having, and you, your world has been rocked. Turn to Jesus. He cares for you. We notice in Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 through 30, Jesus says these words, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. See, that's why Jesus came. Jesus took upon our sin. He took upon our infirmity. He took upon uh, uh, all of that, and he went to a cross, and he paid our debt on the cross so that through faith in him we might live. You see, God's long-range plan for our life is to spend eternity with him, free of all of the burdens of this life and all the things that this brings in our life, and in him we experience what we all long for, what we, our deepest longing in our, in our souls and in our hearts. 
And the question is whether you've ever experienced that, whether you know what it is to have a relationship with Jesus Christ. When we read the Psalms, one of the things that we see over and over again in the Psalms is the psalmist often is struggling with some deep malady of the soul and they they go to the Lord in prayer and, and you see the psalmist as they're, as, they're, as they're writing their experience with the Lord and they begin in the depths of depression and sadness and at the end they're, they're, their hearts are bursting with joy. And what made all the difference? Did their circumstances change? No. But God was present with them in their struggle, in their pain, in their hardship and he carried them through And he gave them a joy that is indescribable, a peace that transcends all understanding. He gave them to that in the midst of their brokenness, and he lifted them up. What a beautiful picture of what God does for each of us as we go to him, as we run to him in our troubles. We don't know all the answers behind the troubles that we face. But we do know that he has all the answers to those things, and we can leave those things with him and trust him with it. Let's go to the Lord together in prayer. Father.